happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 139. And I've got my volume going on my other laptop for June 19th, 2019. My name is Wes Fryer. Uh, for another nine days, I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School. I'll be making a pivot to a new academic technology role this summer, which I am really looking forward to. And I apologize. It is all my fault that we are late. We were taking a walk with the dogs and our girls and uh, watching the lovely thunderstorms build up because we've been having weather, lots of rain and n nighttime, you know, thunder and hail. Uh, well, thunder, no, no, no problem, but uh, severe weather, you know, threats and whatever. So anyway, beautiful night to take a walk, but a little humid. But we're not here to talk about the weather. I'm joined by Dr. Jason Neifer, who probably needs to inform us about what's happening with Montana, because hopefully there will not be the return of the fire smoke this summer. But how is life in Big Sky Country tonight, Dr. Neifer? Uh, it is quite well, thank you. Um, we are in, in the middle of June, although I have to say uh, most schools were out in Montana. Uh, I think I, I know of one, one, two, maybe three that are still in session, but otherwise the, the vast majority of schools were out last week. And I happened to have an opportunity to step into a Staples the other day where they were already advertising back to school stuff. So I obviously miss summertime quite a bit uh, as I am no longer in a classroom role, but it is uh, super uh, sad that Staples finds the uh, need to already advertise back to school things. But speaking of Montana weather, the weather's been beautiful here. We mid 80s across the state, uh, thunderstorms are rolling in. And so far we've had a nice wet spring, which means that the likelihood of fires is gonna go down dramatically. So um, Wes, I thought we'd start tonight I got to say something first. In the corner of my screen is a blue box. It says, this Hangout on Air is live. And then in bold, Hangouts on Air is going away later this year. For quick streaming, try YouTube.com slash webcam. What the heck? All right. So we'll be obviously addressing that and figuring out what the heck we're going to do. I'm uh, glad yeah. it works tonight, but man... Okay, bummer. Well, Sorry. The rain, <laughs> just brought the rain clouds right at the beginning of the show. Actually, what do, tell, tell us what this whole thing is about first, Jason. And then well, I think the, the SD idea is a, is a good one. So Sure. So the Ethnic Situation Room is a weekly podcast that uh, is usually broadcast over YouTube uh, uh, live over Hangouts, but that appears to be going away. Uh, to be clear, this is the second technology that Wes and I have beat into the ground trying to prod, uh, podcast over it. But um, we are a weekly uh, EdTech podcast that looks at technology headlines from across the technosphere, and we try to talk about it back and forth with an educational lens. And this week is a special week because many of our listeners and certainly tens of thousands of teachers, educators, technology specialists across the United States and really worldwide will be attending the International Society for Technology Education Conference in Philadelphia, otherwise known as ISTE. And Wes, I know that you've been to several ISTEs. I've been to several ISTEs. I sadly do not get to go this year due to a variety of factors. I have a conflicting presentation I need to give in a University of Montana-based conference next week. So my local partner in crime, Mike Agustinelli, and I will not be attending ISTE this year. But I thought we'd start off, for those of you that are listening to the podcast and maybe have never gone or going for the first time, 
time or have only gone once or twice and found it overwhelming. And to be super clear, you should embrace that feeling as opposed to feel dread from it because it's an extraordinarily large event. I thought that Wes and I would share some of our kind of best tips for making ISTE um, a, a great experience for you. So uh, I'll start off by saying that uh, you should absolutely plan to be comfortable during your 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 few day experience there. One of the important things to do is get really great walking shoes. And I have only made that mistake once that I accidentally brought a pair of shoes that were in my closet that I had not worn many times before. And so um, I am a pretty regular step counter. I've got a uh, pedometer that I wear pretty regularly, either a Fitbit or an Android watch. And I can tell you that probably at least three of my top 10 days ever in the history of me walking were at the ISTE conference because you will walk around. Um, the uh, venues are always massive sized. There's usually around 30,000 people uh, attending the conference in some way, shape, or form. A lot of those are vendors and uh, staff from various vendors and, of course, the ISTE people themselves. So not everyone's an attendee, but to fit 30,000 human beings into a single space, um, uh, if ISTE was a town in Montana, it would be the sixth largest town in the state of Montana. Um, they have to have a big space. Um, Atlanta... Um, uh, probably the most infamous for me uh, from an ISTE standpoint, the Atlanta conference was in the World uh, Conference Congress, I think is what the, the name of the Atlanta venue is. And to walk even from session to session was mile, mile and a half to do that. So be prepared to walk and have great walking shoes. So, Absolutely. Wes, a tip from you, sir. Well, um, I would say, you know, Enjoy the lounges. I am not really a huge fan of, of the vendor boat show uh, side of, of ISTE, although, you know, I mean, that's one of the, the great things about a conference that 18,000 people go to. It it can be a different conference for many different people, and, and so people find what they really like. I really enjoy <clears throat> the uh, the lounges, and so even to take in the keynotes, and in fact, a couple of years ago, I think Jason and I got to do that together, um, where, you know, you've got a great flat screen, different people are there, have your laptop out, following the tweets, uh, back channeling, um, and then just, you know, really comfortable chairs and, and a comfortable location, uh, and a, and a, it's kind of like watching, you know, football, right? College or professional football. Uh, honestly, the, the best seat is oftentimes in your living room because, you know, television just has such a great view of what's going on. So anyway, it is cool to be in the, the actual hall with everybody, but I've enjoyed that. And uh, I really just enjoy the conversations. Um, the bloggers cafe has been around for a while. There's also other, other places to hang out, the newbies lounge, um, you know, other, other places. So for me, the best part of a conference is usually, you know, the sidebar conversations that happen bet between or after sessions. I mean, many times it is being able to catch a session from somebody who you followed or, you know, on a really important topic and you find new people who you're going to, you're going to continue to learn from. I think that's probably the number one thing I would recommend is if you don't have a Twitter account, get on Twitter and look for the opportunities to build your professional learning community. Also to build lists. Um, I really, really enjoy filtering my feed with lists using not only just Twitter, but Flipboard and 
you know, for me, a conference is not just an opportunity to synchronously learn in that time and space. It's the opportunity to connect with others, to find people who are passionate about topics uh, that, that we're passionate about, and then be able to learn along with them and be engaged with them on an ongoing basis, which I think is far more powerful. It's a lot like if you hear a speaker and that person either wrote a book or they recommend a book, and then you read that book, that impact is probably going to be far greater on, on your mind and, and potentially on your behavior than, you know, simply listening to even a very engaging, you know, 45 minute or hour lecture or whatever it is. So get on Twitter, look for the um, hashtags to follow. And then shout out to Peggy George, who is in our chat room. And for anybody who is joining us live, please uh, join us there and uh, feel free to share. And what Peggy has shared is the excellent website for not at ISTE. So the hashtag not at ISTE uh, always you know, seems to trend and there's far more people that, that don't go, even though there's a lot of people that are there. And so this is a Weebly site. The web link is actually not at ISTE dot Weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash participants.html. So you can click that link if you just go to our show notes, which incidentally, I apologize for not getting our show published last week. I think that's the first time I've really, really blundered on that. But I am taking Friday off of work today or this week, uh, so I should have no excuses. And I will not only get last week's episode 138 up with with links, but I will get this week up as well. However, you can always check out our links at edtechsr.com slash links. Jason, I have an ISTE question for you. What What is your most uh, impactful memory in terms of a session at ISTE? Like you really remember, you know, that presenter or that session or that keynote? Is there one that stands out for you? And then what would you say has been the overall effect of, of ISTE on your professional practice as an educator um, and a technology leader? Sure. So my first ISTE was in 2006 in San Diego, and it was kind of an amazing uh, a couple of days for me for a variety of reasons. Um, my school district that I was teaching at the time wasn't super great about uh, funding national travel for teachers, and they had they kind of nudged in a direction where you could start applying for, for what they called new professionalism money uh, to go to national conferences. And I had been to NCCE, the uh, regional ISTE affiliate conference, several times. It's an organization that I enjoy so much that I'm now a part of, of that organization and, and help administer that conference every year. But uh, ISTE was my first opportunity in 2006 to go to a national audience, and I wanted to jump in with both feet, and I volunteered that year in the Open Source Pavilion, which is not a feature of uh, uh, ISTE anymore because open source is kind of less of a, I, I think, a, a, a nuanced topic. It's, it's now kind of integrated into a lot of other things that, that, that happen there. But I volunteered there and met a lot of people. Steve Harkinon is someone I met in, in 2006 as part of the Open Source Pavilion, but that was the year that I really started seeing the web, the kind of rewrite web. It's a term we don't really use anymore that described the, the earliest days of the notion of, of, of the web would not be static and the web would be editable and wikis and blogs and podcasting um, were all a big part of, of what I was influenced to do that year. And, um, you know, I, I, I people that, that, that know my classroom know that I'm not a super techie teacher in the classroom. I very carefully adopt technologies uh, for no other reason than because I hold social studies so dear to me, which is what I taught in K-12 classrooms, that I really wanted to uh, you know, make sure that 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 
I, along with my students, adopted technologies carefully so we could keep learning at the center of everything. But I came home that year very energized um, to look at, at at kind of more interactive ways to use the Internet. And I found ISTE that year to be extraordinarily um, uh, impactful to me. Now, I actually want to flip something you'd said earlier, Wes, and, and kind of provide a counterpoint. Um, uh, I think the vendor floor is extremely valuable at ISTE. And in fact, uh, the reason why I'm reminded of 2006 is that I don't know if you were at uh, the San Diego ISTE, uh, Wes, but uh, that year uh, Best Buy had these stupid large bags that they were giving out. They were about five feet tall, these kind of big shopping bags. And, you know, teachers and free stuff, it's it's like a you know, an, an insect to a bright light at night, right? Like that there are these teachers carrying around these ginormous bags from Best Buy that were, you know, you had to like light, lug along with you. And um, and I, I remember, in fact, because my, my wife, uh, my wife came with me that year and my wife and I saw a number of those bags, like literally like tumbling down the street the two days after the conference was over with, because how the heck do you, you do you, uh, carry a five foot by five foot bag on an airplane. But the point being that I've really evolved since that time in kind of treating the vendor floor as something that's become an important part of my job. And so if you have any decision making at all uh, with, with your district, if you're on a technology committee, if you are in a classroom that has a budget that uh, allows you some autonomy to spend as part of, of your experience uh, as a teacher or whatever your role is in your district, schedule meetings with vendors at ISTE. Oftentimes they're off the floor. Um, sometimes they involve, uh, you know, a muffin or a bagel and a nice cup of coffee or uh, perhaps other kinds of beverages, depending on what time of day it's at. But more importantly, you can sit down with, in some cases, CEOs of companies, um, uh, developers from companies, both hardware and software developers. And those conversations have, for me, become very fruitful. And in fact, uh, the last uh, two years at ISTE, not only have I been able to meet with every one of the vendors I work with uh, as part of my day job and talk with them about the roadmap uh, of their product, um, it led to fruitful conversations later where my organization got a beta test new features and find out things that were happening 24, 36 months down the road. One other piece of advice related to the vendor floor is that ISTE has been interesting in that the last four maybe five years, they've had a startup pavilion, which is a small area of the larger floor where companies that really can't afford a booth at ISTE, and I'm going to go ahead and guess it's a shocking amount of money uh, to, to get a big booth uh, at ISTE, but if you can get there um, and, and see some of the startups that are there, those are also opportunities to get on the ground floor of what could be tomorrow's great educational technology. And I've, I've had, I've demoed probably 20 tools from, from uh, Startup Pavilion participants. Uh, I've developed relationships with people that ended up at other companies uh, that developed cool things that were part of, of, of tool sets that I wanted to use later. and also kind of gives you a sense of where things are going. One other thing to note is that Microsoft, Google, uh, I don't think Apple goes to ISD. Oh, um, they don't. They, they, they didn't go to. They stopped going to MacWorld too. So. Yeah, yeah. They don't really like going to the <laughs> conferences, right? Um, but uh, most of the major ed, ed, ed tech vendors will actually offer 
20 to 40 minute sessions on the vendor floor that are usually good implementation sessions as well. And Apple Distinguished Educators will will offer things and, and do yeah. things. So the Google booth is always a great one to, to yeah. go to and see what they're going to be announcing. Well, as an example, uh, uh, TechSmith, which is the maker of Snagit and Camtasia Studio, a tool that's so important to uh, my organization that we site license it for our teachers. Um, I've seen some of the best presentations I've seen are teachers that, that TechSmith brought in to present from the floor. The presentations are usually short, 15 to 20 minutes, and it gives you an opportunity to, um, uh, to see great implementation of those tools in the classroom. That said, it is a boat show. I think that's a really apt metaphor for what. Well, and uh, shout out to Gary Steger for that. I yeah. heard him claim that first. And you know, it's a very apt metaphor for what's going on there. And you will be approached, like if you walk up and down the aisles. Uh, and I usually try to hit every aisle at some point in the conference. You're going to get approached by people. And sadly, some vendors don't want to talk to teachers that don't have budget authority. And uh, some folks aren't super great about accepting feedback to things. And I won't give any specific uh, callouts tonight. Uh, but I've had some awkward conversations uh, with with vendors on the floor because there's salespeople aren't always there to talk about your concerns about their tools. And, uh, you know, it's not always a, a, an idyllic experience, but I've had great, uh, great luck uh, with the vast majority of vendors I talk to on, on the vendor floor. So something else I'll chime in with, and I discovered this a few years ago, are the poster sessions. You know, um, maybe the sessions that get the most buzz uh, are, are keynotes and then some of the, the breakouts and they'll, or they'll be, you know, inevitably sessions that should be in a room twice their size and it's packed, standing room only, et cetera. Uh, but the poster sessions are fantastic and they're usually like two different, two hours and you just wander around and get to visit with folks and everybody has usually a little elevator speech to kind of share and show. Um, I've had a chance to share some poster sessions and I think some of the best conversations and learning ha have come from poster sessions in the past. Um, one of the things and this, I think this is a really pretty, a pretty good tip um, I've done is used Google Draw to make a very large format uh, collage of resources and then, you know, found out first, I guess, from our local print shop, you know, how big can they print these these banners? Because a poster session will uh, consist in terms of the setup of a bulletin board that, that people can pin things to. And then usually they've got a little flat screen monitor that you can plug a laptop in if you want to show stuff. And then there's a table that you can put stuff out. So anyway, uh, a couple of years ago, my wife and I uh, did a poster session about STEM uh, resources and projects. And it is really cool uh, to be able to just fill that whole uh, poster board area pretty quickly. And so you can put QR codes. That's a, that's a great tip um, is to, you know, have your phone. Of course, if you have an iPhone now, does Android uh, scan to QR code from their camera app, or do you have to have a separate app to scan to QR code? Do you know, Jason? I think some that see the problem with Android is there are uh, dozens of camera apps. So, right. and the native Google one doesn't work on all phones. I think the Google one does. I don't know about others. Okay. Well, be ready to scan QR codes because you will probably see a number of QR codes that you can scan very quick way to, you know, grab somebody's resources. Um, then being able to share that on Twitter. Um, as we mentioned, not at ISTE is a, is a, is on on Twitter, it's a hashtag to follow. Also share, you know, resources. If you're going to ISTE, uh, please share resources, good things that you find, you know, not only using the official hashtag, which I would assume is ISTE19. Sometimes it's ISTE2019. Usually people will kind of do both. 
Peggy might be able to tell us what the official one is, but not at ISTE does not have a year. It's just, it's just not at ISTE. Um, we were exchanging in the channel, the uh, back channel kind of favorite keynotes. Uh, Peggy was saying that Adam Bellows keynote was one of her favorites and it was great. Um, I really loved Chris Lehman's keynote that he shared yeah. a number of years ago. Um, but non-educator wise, my favorite was Steven Johnson. Um, and I'll put this into the show notes, but, uh, this is when I was first starting to get into sketch noting. So it's one of my, my early sketch notes that I'm actually proud of because sometimes they look, you know, sort of like a Pictionary, um, you know, not, not, not anything really impressive. Um, but he is a phenomenal author. His book, Where Good Ideas Come From, is not only a book, but it's also a PBS series. And just love being able to hear from him. Um, just, he's a scholar and somebody who's so well-read and brings historical perspectives to technology and to innovation and creativity. And so hopefully that will do a good job. There have been a few years where uh, keynotes have kind of bombed and there's been a lot of discussion about you know, why did this person, you know, get picked to do this? And it's yeah. a lot of different factors. They've done a better job, though, I think not just going with like vendor sponsored and how whatever. But usually the closing keynote is always an educator uh, who is in the classroom directly connected to students and, you know, might be an administrator, but really shares some Great perspectives from the trenches, as it were. So um, I, I do. I think it's great that, that, that ISTE can be something different for everybody. Uh, we are planning, by the way, next year to go. We'll be back in San Diego next year. And so Shelly and I are making plans, hopefully, to go. And um, my tip for folks who want to present is just to make sure you have a really good work cited uh, bibliography for your presentation. I have used Google Scholar the last several years to build up the citations for, you know, related resources to uh, presentations that I'm giving. And I'm not exactly sure if that's it, but that seems to be an, an important ingredient um, that I've had some success getting some sessions accepted. I also tend to like submit 10 different things in the hopes that, you know, maybe I'll get a few, um, but that's happened the last couple times. So are you going to try to go to San Diego next year, Jason, or is that I love that town so much, and it was my first ISTE, and so there's a lot of romance to me for that. And so, yeah, I'll pitch that to there's a usually I, I kind of cobble together funds from from different uh, 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 different interests I have to try to do that. But yeah, I'd love to go to San Diego, and I would make one other pitch. Uh, uh, speaking of, you mentioned the uh, getting resources from the app and such. You know, you don't have to go to a a session to use the resources that are posted by presenters. I've always found that there's there's just no way that you can hit everything you want to hit session wise, right? There, and especially if you're going to end up doing other stuff there, connecting with friends, uh, finding colleagues, uh, meeting Twitter buddies face to face. Wes and I connect whenever we're at ISTE together. Uh, 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 every time it's it's part of the mystique there. But you know, if you have a, 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 a sectional time where there's three sections you want to go to, go to one. Just download the resources from the other two, so you can get a sense of what's going on um, in, in other people's classrooms in other states and in other nations. Another great hashtag Peggy has dropped into the chat, pass the scope edu. So I think this is a shout out to Periscope. Um, and I think I, I really saw Tony Vincent really take this to rather levels. I think he still does, but there's a team of teachers that cover sessions, poster sessions often are some of the best ones where they're, you know, got their phone and they're, they're broadcasting live and doing these interviews. And so you can 
capture or, you know, participate in some of those live, but also, um, you know, catch those after the fact. So, so many different ways that, you know, both the formal learning inside the sessions for attendees and then the informal learning that gets shared out is very powerful. So ISTE is probably the, the biggest catalyst for ed tech idea sharing and, um, you know, also, I just think that the quality of the presentations, like you mentioned, you don't have to go to the sessions to, to completely benefit, to, to benefit from, from resources. And lots of people will put a lot of good time into their slides, into their, their presentations. And, um, that's, that's fantastic. So. And definitely, if you are there and you see something interesting that we need to know about, give us a shout out on Twitter. Uh, it's one of the things I do miss, although a lot of it gets covered. In fact, that's, going to be probably the next story we're going to talk about. A uh, lot of companies release interesting new stuff there. And if you see something that you think we need to cover, please strongly consider um, uh, letting us know about it because we'd like to hear about that. So, All right. Well, where would you like to go now, Dr. Neifer? I'm rapidly dropping in some other links in here, but let's sure. take it somewhere first. So um, as, as it tends to happen, Microsoft, Google... Um, most of the major ed tech vendors will drop new functionality information on at ISTE and uh, Google has announced a slew of updates according to uh, 9 to 5 Google from, I guess, it would be this morning. And there's a lot of interesting things that are happening in Google tools. Uh, for example, Google Forms is getting more updates, including um uh, 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 quiz, uh, locked quiz mode, which allows you to kind of lock down a browser when students take a quiz in Google Classroom. Uh, there's also some updates to uh, the, the, the new design of Drive, Doc, Sheets, and Slides. Uh, you've probably seen a lot of these changes. It's more of what's, what Google calls material design. It's a flat design uh, kind of language that they've been using, mostly on Android, but starting to make its way onto desktop apps. In fact, uh, the last couple of weeks, I, I spend probably... 30, maybe 40% of my productive time in Google Docs. So uh, I have seen some of the uh, uh, slow rollout of material design design precepts in their particular tools. They've announced that that is going to happen. And then also in the quiz uh, functionality in, in uh, quizzes under forms are going to allow you to do things like import questions that they've previously, that you've used in previous forms, which means that you can use old materials pretty easily. Um, one other thing I also want to note, and I'm trying to figure out, I, it's not totally clear to me um, uh, what this means, or, or it's not maybe what I think it is at this point, but there's also a new functionality that allows student information systems to plug into Google Classroom. And so they're opening up an API and working wow, with NIS vendors. That's huge. That's it's huge. Totally, it's totally huge. And um, I, based wow. on, on the early information here, um, I, it's not entirely clear to me what that means yet. But they are working with a couple of, of pretty premier SIS vendors, Infinite Campus, which is a very popular one in the state of Montana. In fact, our state has a statewide implementation of Infinite Campus from our state office. Uh, they are, are one of the early beta testers of direct uh, uh, API access between your SIS and, and Google Classroom. And the reason why that's interesting to me personally is that we are Moodle users uh, at Montana Digital Academy. We buy Blackboard's uh, open. LMS, which is a highly customized version of 
open source Moodle, but we've had conversations internally that we'd like to be able to, with specialized programs, to use Google Classroom as a de facto learning management system, but the management of it is just too hacky to rely on it in anything more than experiments. And we've had uh, a couple of teachers that have really expressed interest to say that what if we just taught the class entirely on Google Classroom? If they have an open API and we happen to use a distance learning specific student information system called Genius SIS, uh, which is a wonderful piece of software, a group out of Florida, a shout out to Betty Lieberman, our uh, 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 SIS um, uh, uh, developer and the CEO of Genius SIS. But the Genius product uh, is really great about working with APIs with LMSs, but there has been no open API in Google. There are ways you can pass flat files back and forth, and there are hacky ways you can do it, but nothing consistent. So I'm really hoping personally that if we could find a way to use Google Classroom as a de facto SIS, it might really help us, especially in personalization efforts we've been doing at the Digital Academy. And we're about to announce um, a new course format that's all centered around personalization uh, for, for highly needy students that need to be in distance learning environments. And we're really happy about that. So I'm certain that Microsoft will have announcements uh, at ISTE. I'm certain that uh, most of the major ed tech vendors, Lego usually announces some interesting things at ISTE every year. Um, the Smartboard people usually announce interesting things. So look out for those announcements um, in coming days from that conference. All right. Awesome. Wow. There are so many articles to put in. Um, I've mentioned this on the show before, but really the only way I survive as a uh, link includer in our show notes is uh, I have a little fun recipe on if this then that whenever I tweet with the hashtag EdTechSR, it grabs my tweet and link and throws it in a Google Doc so I can go back and uh, and put these Google, these uh, links into the Google Doc. So I just put some, uh, Jason has very handily as usual put categories uh, for these different topics and so under the one um, that he had titled that in privacy and I added surveillance to, I put an article from the Washington Post on June 15th. It's titled Hong Kong protesters find ways for stealth in the age of super surveillance. And if you have not been following what has been happening in Hong Kong in the last couple of weeks, uh, you need to tune in. And I, you know, if we had students in class today, this is a fantastic current event to talk about. I think that we are seeing in Hong Kong, um, in some ways, a better demonstration of what it means to live in a democracy uh, than maybe we're seeing in, the, in lots of parts of the United States. I mean, uh, what, what's been going on is the government of China, which, you know, what was it, 1997 or 99 or something like that, when Hong Kong passed from British control over to China, but remained an independent entity with a lot of autonomy. Uh, they have said they're going to pass a, a, a law that will allow extradition of people from Hong Kong over to China. And there's also, I think, a, a, a train line and some new corridors that are being created. Basically, there's a lot of concern over China trying to make Hong Kong into just another Chinese city. Well, the surveillance state is more widespread in China than in any other country on the planet that we know of. Although, shoot, who, you know, not like I can really speak to that with experience. There's lots of uh, authoritarian uh, nations, you know, um, 
President Sisi of Egypt, you know, died this week after being held in solitary confinement for six years. And he was only allowed to see his family like three times and he wasn't given medical treatment. Like there's there's terrible situations and there's definitely very oppressive regimes that employ surveillance and, and these kind of technologies besides China. But uh, what the protesters have done, these are lots of young people, but millions and millions of people taking to the streets. They've been wearing face masks. They've been wearing goggles to protect them from facial recognition. You know, China has deployed this system of social uh, points and capital where, you know, you get these different points and you get on these lists depending upon what you do. And it is it's not just Orwellian. It's it's something else, but it is social control and the chilling of speech. And uh, you would think that maybe no one would be able to, for instance, organize for a protest. And so one of the things this article points out is that in the last four or five years, when they had another big protest movement, all of those leaders basically got put into prison. And I think many of them, if not all of them, are still in prison. Well, this time they have not been identifying who the leaders are, and they've been using Telegram, which is an encrypted app. The um, downloads of Telegram really spiked, moving up, you know, or moving closer to the to the dates of this. The um, unelected leader, I don't think, I don't know if she's called a president, but anyway, of Hong Kong, actually did back down and said they're not going to move forward for now with this agreement. You know, it remains to be seen, but holy cow, the things that are continuing to emerge and develop, especially with U.S.-China relations. In fact, maybe I'll, I'll put my Geek of the weekend about that because I've been listening to some pretty incredible podcasts about Huawei and, you know, U.S. trade war and um, the, the future of, uh, of Chinese relations with the world, with the Silk Road Initiative and all the stuff that they're doing. So great post in the, in the Washington Post. And Jason, do you think we need to at all educate our students about apps like telegram and how would you based on what i've said and you've heard uh, from a from a social studies perspective uh what kinds of lessons do you think there are for for students and citizenship lessons for us to to discuss together well i think the hardest conversation here is that um well i i i'm a government teacher by training right i my my undergraduate work was in political science and then i also studied a, a lot of european history as part of my undergraduate degree and like that is always the the classic balance between you know teaching teaching sneaky ways to engage in your rights without you know instructing students to you know, defy authority right but I think we're in an era now where um, enough technology has enough uh, tentacles in so many parts of our lives that I do think that the conversations about things like encryption and messaging is an important part of, of uh, education today. And if I were teaching government in 2019, and to be clear, the last time I taught government was in, in 2008, I, uh, I, I always dream about going back to teach government and history for that matter again. And I do think that, that it's changed a lot in, in just the 10 years since I've been out of the classroom. But I, I do think that there's a balance there to say that when you're talking about your rights, when you're talking about civil liberties, when you're talking about the free exchange of ideas and what sets a democracy apart from other styles and forms of government, um, it would be pretty hard not to talk about things like why journalists 
build tools around uh, 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 passing information in secret and um, uh, untrackable ways. Uh, it reminds me of Google has its own VPN called Outline, which is a, a roll your own VPN. It's a piece of software, open source piece of software you can download. It's the my VPN of choice that you can set up pretty easily on the Amazon cloud, or I have a couple of, of, of I've done a couple of different instances of it. They advertise that it's a great VPN for me as an end user. It's also a great VPN for journalists. And so they've advertised that product to journalists. And I think that the fact that those tools exist and the fact that journalists feel the need to cover the tracks in that way could be extraordinary fodder for um, conversation in the classroom. That said, uh, even uh, the way I probably would frame this conversation going on right now with the protests in Hong Kong is the denial of service attack that was uh, aimed at Telegram um, uh, that is, is, it's been widely reported was sourced to the Chinese government. And so for a time, the tool had slowed down, I believe was down uh, temporarily because there was some suspicion, which ended up being correct suspicion, that uh, protesters in Hong Kong were using that tool to use uh, to use private communication to organize uh, protest in that particular city state. So, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, it it it. Uh, Social studies stuff, in my mind, is really across the curriculum, right? It's hard to talk about science in context without talking about social studies-like themes in the same way that people would argue that math and, and English are also across the curriculum. But I think there are ways that you can create rich, engaging conversations with your kids by talking about the current events that I think are very much driven by technological availability. Definitely. All right. Where else should we go? Man, I guess we're going to have to go to like at least 15 after the hour because of our late start, but sure. Uh, well, uh, maybe a, a couple of, uh, uh, throws back to last week. We, last week, Wes and I talked about the two weeks ago, um, Apple announcements. And I've been looking at a lot of the after, um, uh, after, uh, coverage of the new hardware announcements. And of course, there's been a ton of hand wringing over the fact that, you know, uh, Apple, uh, released, yes, a new Mac Pro, yes, a new beautiful, uh, five, six, seven K mod or whatever it is. Uh, but also that there are selling a mod or stand for a thousand dollars. But there was a really great article, uh, from Apple Insider on June 14th that talks about, why some high-end users are very comfortable with both the price and the feature set of the new Mac Pro. And I think that there has been uh, a lot of the hand-wringing that I've done over, over Apple in the last five years has been that so many professionals have moved away from Mac high-end hardware and software because of the perceived failures of the so-called trash can Mac Pro. And here is a great article from Apple Insider that talks about that there's a lot of legitimate reasons people might want to spend 6K, 10K, 12K uh, on the lower end Mac Pros because of, of the type of work that they do. And this article articulates very well the fact that, uh, that Apple made a lot of good design decisions with their new Mac Pro. Um, that uh, make a lot of sense for professional level users. And the other thing that was mentioned in this article that we've talked about a bit in the show is that even though Apple hardware is expensive, it tends to have a longer use life than other types of computer hardware. So you can't compare a $2,400 uh, Mac Pro laptop or MacBook Pro laptop 
uh, which a lot of professionals I know end up getting four, five, six years out of with a $199 Chromebook that is much lower in build quality and due to the hardware involved in a low-end machine like that might feel pretty sluggish in 24 or 36 months, whereas the higher-end uh, higher Mac hardware uh, is supposed to last or is, it will probably last for, for, for much, much longer. And in fact, one professional in, in quoted in that article says that they may use a high-end piece of Mac hardware for three, four, five years uh, as a production machine, but then they end up getting um, a number of, of, of other years out of it by putting it in, in a secondary use, whether it's running signage or a backup computer or a main office computer or something along those lines. And so, um, you know, I think that provides some much needed perspective uh, in, in the Mac world. Uh, one quick question for you, Wes, that I was going to ask you last week and I forgot. Do you, I know that you are largely a Mac campus uh, at, at your institution. It, it, were you buying Mac, like, were you buying desktop Macs for anyone there other than, than maybe like an iMac here or there? We were refreshing some iMacs in a fine arts lab. Uh, we have done the, the site license for Adobe Creative Cloud, which if you're not doing that, if you, if you get anywhere close, if you're 10 licenses or more, basically, you might as well site license for 500 users and 2,500, and you can go up from there. Um, so we are uh, continuing to have IMAX in some labs. Actually, our makerspace for our middle school is getting a refresh. I'm excited. The lab I will be teaching in, I'm going to teach fifth and sixth grade computers. And I was sketching out my curriculum this week and meeting with our makerspace teacher. Uh, really looking forward to that. Um, I'll basically be teaching from 10 a.m. to 11.45 each day. I'll be teaching a, a class of fifth graders and sixth graders who I see every other day for a trimester. So it's like 20, 26 sessions. So anyway, that has been a Dell lab of, um, you know, four-year-old actually yeah four-year-old machines and so uh that that's another case of return on investment because the imax which are even older we have yep. put some solid state drives in but we're moving those over so i'm going to get to teach in that mac lab uh and um we are though primarily a laptop you know campus as far as all of our faculty go in fact the last faculty that had a desktop got a laptop this year so that was a big milestone but i don't think that you know the high-end macs are going to have an impact on us but it is good that they're available, and as I think maybe when uh, Dave Quinn was on the show, we talked a little bit about, you know, the high-end users perhaps have, have ended up migrating because there was such a long gap in the upgrade to the trash can Mac and that high-end Mac that, um, you know, it, it, this is something that takes time because of the investment that's involved, but it's good to see Mac in that area and also just the – the upgradability and extensibility like of the of the new new cheese grater right i mean it it's phenomenal i'm sure steve wozniak's pretty excited about it it's very different from the seal yep. you know you can't change it you can't upgrade it what is that like eight pci slots and all the statistics on it are over the top so but probably not something we're going to be uh investing in at school yep well and for me i'll tell you that we've already had a conversation we we have a I'm, I, you know, I, I have an iMac at work. It's not my primary computer anymore. I'm actually using a, a Chromebox uh, as my primary computer, but we have our, my old iMac out the main, main part of our office, our collaborative area, and we're going to uh, 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 adopt a single sign-on from Google uh, a structure that we're going to uh, uh, do so that it's usable by everyone in our office. But uh, we're looking at it. I mean, the, the other guy in our office is, is Mike Agustinelli is, is our, our program director, and he's a Mac guy. And 
Um, you know, it's it's a high price. He's currently using a, a 5K iMac that is a, a beautiful machine. It works quite well. Uh, this would be a substantially larger investment uh, for that. Uh, um but it probably would be hardware we don't have to replace every four or five years. So it, it probably works out in the wash in regards to, you know, how long we're using those particular devices. So interesting, interesting conversations are happening. So where to, Dr. Fryer? Well, let's see. Um, there are some uh, important announcements uh, coming from Microsoft, well, about Microsoft coming from different Government agencies, uh, so this is Forbes on June 18th, U.S. government announces critical warning for Microsoft Windows users. And if you remember not too long ago, we had the WannaCry virus and a worm, I guess, actually. And <laughs> the remarkable thing about that was, you know, Microsoft actually issued patches for like Windows XP and other unsupported systems because it was so perilous. Um, they're saying that this new vulnerability um, has that same kind of potential. It's called Keep Blue, and it does not affect Windows 10 users. Um, it doesn't affect newer iterations of Windows Server, but if you're running, you know, Windows 2003, um, Windows XP, Windows Vista, um, I think that must be Windows 2003 Server. Um, anyway, that this has a lot of uh, potential. And so not only has... Uh, what the NSA came out, then the Department of Homeland Security uh, has has gone public with a warning. Yeah, so NSA was first, and then uh, CISA, the uh, Homeland Security Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. So those are your uh, that's one of your doom and gloom uh, security articles. This other one uh, reminds me of the the book that I read or listened to on Audible called Lights Out. Uh, this was from Wired on June 14th. The highly dangerous Triton hackers have probed the U.S. power grid. And I've been listening to podcasts and reading articles about how we've you know, been going on the offensive and infiltrating our potential adversaries' networks now to be able to take things down. Um, but, you know, this idea that different entities that may or may not be nation states that may or may not be directly, you know, targetable um, have, well, let me, let me, let me read a little excerpt from this over the past several months, security analysts at the electronic information sharing and analysis center and the critical infrastructure security firm Dragos have been tracking a group of sophisticated hackers carrying out broad scans of dozens of us power grid targets, apparently looking for entry points into their networks Scanning alone represents a threat, but these hackers known as Xenotime, or sometimes as the Triton actor, after their signature malware, have a particularly dark history. The Triton malware was designed to disable the so-called safety instrument systems at Saudi Arabian oil refinery Petro Rabia in a, in a 2017 cyber attack. And if you're not familiar with that, that was the Stuxnet virus uh, that was um, purportedly created by both the CIA and the Israeli intelligence services with the apparent aim of Oh, okay, stop. No, that's not true. This was a response to that. The Stuxnet was an attack on Iran. This was anti-Western groups who were targeting Saudi Arabia in a similar kind of way. So they were crippling equipment that monitors for leaks, explosions, other catastrophic physical events. Dragos has called Xenotime easily the most dangerous threat activity publicly known. Um, so with at, you know, at the risk of uh, being accused of wearing a tinfoil hat, keeping it close at close hand, um, I'm saying this because I, 
I, we need to do this too. Like I, we, our family just personally need, need to be well prepared for natural disaster, right? We can have ice storms. We can have tornadoes. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things that can happen that can disable the power grid for a while. Uh, our friend in Puerto Rico, who my parents recently just visited with, was over six months without power at his place. So he was using his generator and, you know, I think he had a well and they were able to, to live, you know, without any electricity for half a year. Uh, that is a pretty challenging idea to think about. And um, I just think that we all ought to think about emergency preparedness. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to become a prepper and freak out, but, you know, the average city, I think, has food for about seven days. We ought to have some stuff, you know, st stacked away because we're just going to we are continuing to become more and more dependent upon technology and articles like these. Um, yes, we're numbed to hacks and breaches of our data and our information. That's also a problem. But um, I, I think we're going to see the continued escalation of cyber war as what what does Sun Tzu call uh, warfare? You know, politics by other means. Right. It's just going to keep happening with with cyber. So if you followed what's happened in the Ukraine and the ways in which Russia has basically tested and and demonstrated their capabilities, um, I don't think that China or Russia, you know, want to get into a shooting war with the United States. And so it's um, it may come from other nation states and other kinds of groups. But uh, hopefully our leaders are going to continue to invest in hardening and protecting these important parts of, of our infrastructure. And, and we have parts to play. Our local government, local officials have roles to play in emergency preparedness. Um, and, and doing that is not, you know, wearing a tinfoil hat or being crazy. It's saying, hey, you know, I mean, look at weather and the kinds of things that, that, that are happening uh, regionally and globally. Um, we ought to be prepared. So be prepared. I will not sing any more than that. <laughs> well, and then the other thing I would add there is that, I mean, it, it's something bad's going to happen at some point, right? There's just too many scenarios where we've talked in the past, and I think I might have actually, I remember I posted recently an article about this that we didn't get to, but uh, the Internet of Things devices in your home, the in the last five years there's been a dramatic uh, uh, proliferation of, uh, wireless devices in your home that have terrible firmware that's not updated, that has tons of holes in it, and they're really easy to hack, to take on and create botnets and, and attack your internal da-da-da-da-da-da-da. At some point, that's going to create something big. I'm hoping it's a relatively little something big as opposed to some of the more terrible scenarios that are being supposed by security researchers, but we've had a dramatic increase in the last five years of devices that are connected to the Internet, of which the vast majority are not secure. Yeah. So be careful. On that note, uh, I think I put this one under data privacy and surveillance, but this is actually a, where did I put it? This is an Om Malik um, article. Uh, oh, I guess I didn't put it in under a category, but it's from June 16th. Uh, if you don't follow Om, uh, he used to be the leader of, of the Giga Ohm uh, publication, and he's just, he's one of these people that reads all the time and has, you know, really important ideas. His post is called How and Why to Buy Computers Properly. And so to this point about hacks and Internet of Things, he's saying, you know, we are not living in the 1950s. There's these maintenance and operation mentalities, and some of these are probably prevalent in schools near you where we don't think of, cons of computers as consumables. We just think about, you know, keeping things around forever 
uh, you know, we can skip that oil change. We can get away with not, you know, upgrading that. And so the potential vulnerability of having hardware that is uh, insecure, um, not being patched, um, it's it's huge. And this is going to increasingly become an issue in the home as more kinds of devices are being purchased, which, you know, don't necessarily on the part of the manufacturers and then the creators having a real eye for security. And so we're going to be continually vulnerable as a society, because just like we saw with the Mirai botnet attack, which were those, you know, those kids in Alaska that were Minecraft hosting um, entrepreneurs and wanted to find a way to take down their adversaries. Well, they devised a malware that took advantage of, you know, security cameras and all kinds of devices in people's homes and led to the largest scale denial of service attacks that we have seen yet against the DNS system that makes the internet work. And, you know, it was just this crazy uh, <coughs> level and scale of cyber attack. So kudos to Ohm for saying that. And, uh, are, are you guys, what, are, are you the only one moving to Chrome in the Digital Academy, Jason? Or are you bringing others with you? Yeah. Well, we are remote staff. Uh, we have uh, four people that work out of the office as ambassadors that, that are, they're probably easier described as salespeople, even though the, the, we're, 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 uh, our product is, is externally funded, so we don't charge anything for that. And we recently moved those four individuals to Chromebooks. We bought those beautiful uh, HP 14-inch X360s that are fast and beautiful HD uh, touchscreens. And part of the reason we did it is because we had a terrible time trying to manage uh, Windows machines remotely. Like it's just not, there's just no tool set for it. And there is a beautiful tool set uh, built into the uh, Google Chromebook uh, management interface uh, for K-12 schools. But I'm the only one that, that's using Chrome basically full time. Um, we, uh, uh, another member of our, our staff uh, is, is using one of our, our backup Chromebooks uh, just as an experiment to make sure he understands the platform. Mike on our staff has a Chromebook that's a couple of years old now that we, we do a lot of testing on, but we're a very multi-platform office. And in fact, if you don't mind, I'm going to actually segue that into uh, uh, one other piece of interesting information that's related to Chrome. And I think this is for me, I, I think Chrome OS prevent or presents an extraordinary, interesting opportunity for security, but there's some things that have to happen first to, to take uh, the typical, maybe not super tech savvy user, but, but heavy user and making this more of a reality. We mentioned this a couple of months ago when it was announced, but there's been some interesting developments in um, Strata, which is, or Stadia, Strata, Stadia, I'm making up words now. Um, uh, uh, Stadia is the new platform that, that Google's releasing that allows you to stream games, uh, uh, high quality, high resolution games, to uh, various platforms, the Chrome browser you can you can stream Stadia to, you can stream it to a Chromebook, you can stream it to one of the higher end Chromecasts, or you can stream it to an Android phone. And Stadia has been announced uh, uh, as being released later this year. There's an excellent Verge article that talks about the service. Um, that is going to be about $10 a month, I think, when it goes wide. If you want to do it a couple months early, 
then you can pay, I think it's $160 to become one of their early adopters. Uh, I don't know why you would pay or why they're charging so much to be an early adopter. I think they'd actually be better off having people pay less and just limiting the number of early adopters. But um, And then there's a, a, a really great uh, article about a demo that happened at E3. E3 is a big international gaming con- or, or, or video gaming conference that uh, a lot of, of console makers and uh, game manufacturers uh, released new information. And apparently there was um, a, a, a demo where, I think it was in San Francisco, San Vicente, somewhere, where they were streaming um, Doom Eternal, which is uh, a part of the, the long-standing Doom series, over the internet. And it was apparently incredibly flawless. Uh, it was on a Chromebook, so that that's that's interesting in itself. But uh, there is... Uh, oh, in fact, Doom Eternal's not even released yet. It's an upcoming uh, shooter that is available through a browser and at 1080p with 60 frames per second, which is a, uh, a pretty decent clip uh, 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 from a, a gaming standpoint, they were able to play it flawlessly um, over the internet. It was not something where they had a local server that they were playing with it was over the internet and obviously gaming's cool and interesting and i'm sure that that impacts a lot of folks but i keep thinking that this is maybe a way to reinvent the software market for chromebooks because there's a lot of applications that i think uh are relatively intensive that a chromebook right now the android apps or web apps can't really do but if you can stream a game um in that way why can't you stream Adobe Creative Cloud apps, right? And the answer is, I of course you can, right? Like that, That's works. the future, or that's one yeah. future scenario. That- and I know there's a lot of controversy. I know that I've heard of actually a couple of podcasts in the last couple of weeks because uh, the whole notion of cloud subscriptions to software is very controversial for some people because uh, they want to be able to buy software and own it long term. I've actually been much more happy in the world where I'm renting software than I was buying software because it allows me a smaller monthly price as opposed to an outlay, which is usually tougher for me as a consumer. But I love this notion that sometime soon I could be streaming uh, InDesign or streaming uh, Illustrator, the two products in Adobe that I use the most, to my Chromebook and have access to the same software that I would if I was on on Windows or on Mac PC. And I also think that makes Chromebook rollouts in schools infinitely more interesting. It does. It does. And uh, I think the overlay of security and return on investment, it's going to be exciting this year. Um, I'm hopeful that we're going to have opportunities to engage in good dialogue at school about one-to-one because we're not one-to-one. We are BYOD at our high school and have, you know, Chromebook carts and MacBook carts and things like that. So, um it is challenging, of course, to look into the future and try and peer and, you know, consider what, what is going to be the best device that's going to meet the needs of our students. But we, we do need to just pay attention, especially to what we want to create and make and to the curriculum and those different kinds of pieces. Um, far more to it than just how cheaply can someone deliver a device to my loading dock at my school. Um, I want to mention one other article. Uh, this is actually at Apple, but also a, a privacy and tech correction article. And so I put it under um, the data privacy and surveillance heading. This was CNBC on June 16th. Apple CEO Tim Cook 
Technology companies need to take responsibility for the chaos they create. Tim shared the keynote at the commencement, or I guess it's commencement address at Stanford University, and was taking companies like Google and Facebook to task, saying that you need to take responsibility. And, and so this whole thing of opting out for, well, we're just the platform, um, while that has benefits for free speech, the virality and the global impact of platforms like Facebook and YouTube um, on democracy and you know media literacy and citizenship and our societies and cultures, um, it has and continues to have ha have tremendous unintended consequences, or at least you would think unforeseen consequences. And so again, we see Apple taking a real strong stand here for privacy. And I think that the points he's making, you know, this is characteristic of the tech correction that we've been discussing for many, many weeks here on the show. And that is that we're going to see a backlash against the unregulated wild west of social media. And I think what Jason and I both hope is that the, the internet as we know it will not be broken by said regulation, which is, you know, a scary prospect in, in many many respects, but we've got to address these kind of things. And again, shout out to Carol Caldwaller. Did you look at that Ted, that, uh, TEDx presentation as far as the Brexit and, and, uh, ever see that one, Jason, that's a, I have read accounts of it. Yeah. It's super yeah. interesting. Yep. It's a, and, and you know what I'm thinking next year too, as far as like technology issues and things I want to introduce my kids to and have them think about, I mean, having our kids <clears throat> grapple with these issues, uh, about privacy, about surveillance, about security, um, there's many reasons why these are important. Um, I, I heard a while back that, you know, in the not too distant future, maybe it's even today, every responsible board of directors is going to have someone who's an expert on cyber, on cyber and cybersecurity, just like they would on accounting and, and keeping the books straight, right? You wouldn't think about a board not having a high level of expertise when it comes to financial accounting. Well, the same thing needs to be true on the security front. So, Anyway, good stuff to talk with students about. I fear that we should probably talk Geek of the Week because yeah. even though we started late, we're about 17 after the hour, and we, we don't want to keep everyone up too late if they happen to be tuning in live. So sure. do you have any Geeks of the Week for us? Sure, I do. It's a, it's a quick one. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty nerdy, but if you are um, a tweak, uh, kind of a tweak nerd like I am where you like to play with stuff and uh, hacks through things. I want to share a great website called XDA Developers. It is the Android community for people that like to install alternative firmwares to their phone. And what that means is that if you have a, an Android phone, uh, a lot of times you can uh, do some sometimes pretty nerdy things, plug it into a computer, uh, unlock the bootloader is, is one of the things you need to do. And if you can do that, and I would especially recommend that you don't use your primary phone for this, but if you have an older phone or you buy a used phone or uh, you have maybe a phone with a broken screen that you want to play with, uh, you can oftentimes take older phones and uh, download new versions of Android that are usually better versions of Android than was originally installed on phones like Samsung phones and, uh, you know, uh, update it to a more modern version. And I was going to actually show off a, 
uh, version of this that I have, and I do not uh, I do not have it available tonight because I left it upstairs, but um, I have an old Galaxy Note 4 on T-Mobile that I picked up uh, as kind of a burner phone uh, for an international trip a, a year or two ago, and it was on a very old version of Android. As it turns out, the T-Mobile version of, of the Galaxy Note 4 is very easy to erase the software on there and install uh, uh, newer versions of the software, and so I'm using... Um, uh, Android 9 or Pi on a Galaxy Note 4 on T-Mobile, and it's not my primary phone, but it works just fine. Slower, it's certainly not a, a premier phone experience, but it's a, a what's what's called a, 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 a pixel version of Android, which means there's no other crud on there from other manufacturers, and it's pretty neat. So if you are into that kind of hacky stuff, and you ever wanted to kind of you know reinstall information on the phone, uh, that's a place to do that. XDA Developers. Thank you for that. And I actually just saw an article that I'd love for you to pick up quickly because this is hugely enormous. Uh, the ZDNet article from June 13th on Apple. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's been stories back and forth about uh, uh, Google Chrome uh, uh, eliminating the opportunity for third-party ad blockers to plug into the Chrome browser. And to be honest, this article is not as as adamant as I would want it to be that apparently there's still going to be the ability to plug into some architecture into the Chrome browser to unblock uh, uh, unblock ad blockers, basically, but the, as we previously reported on the podcast, there seems to be some uh, debate about how aggressive the block is going to be for ad blockers. And so um, um, uh, the, it, one of the things that's also happened is a lot of people that, that make browsers based off Chromium, which is open source Chrome, uh, have announced they won't block ad blockers. And so I think uh, Chrome has, uh, uh, the good people at Google Chrome have decided that they're going to try to find some way, shape, or form to allow ad blockers on there. But the notion of whether or not ad blockers will be blocked in futures versions of Chrome is currently in dispute. And so that will be something we'll have to keep an eye on as weeks and months go by. Absolutely, because that <laughs> I haven't wanted to do this, but um, Ben Wilkoff, fan of the show and sometime guest, uh, had had tweeted that he's loving Safari on his Mac. It's just so fast, and there's actually a Safari uh, beta version that he's been using. But Firefox has gotten super fast. So anyway, um, I have been trying some different browsers, and but I I don't want to migrate off Chrome. I just I love it so much. This is baby duck syndrome, right? We get imprinted with the technology, like the baby duck and her mama or his mama. They don't want to leave. So, okay, well, sorry for that additional uh, little piece, but I had to get that one in. Uh, my Geek of the Week's quick, just one this time. Uh, this is a, a podcast recently from, I think, May 31st from Triangulation. And this is a twit podcast I've only in the past few months, you know, become aware of. And it's really in-depth interviews that are usually about an hour long. This one is called Brian Hofer on Facial Recognition and Surveillance Tech. Brian is the uh, founder of the Secure Justice Nonprofit. He's one of the primary people in the Bay Area of Silicon Valley and San Francisco pushing for uh, some limits on police force and security force use of surveillance technology um, he is making, I think, a very important case for why we do not want to live in a society where ubiquitous surveillance is everywhere because of the ways that it will will completely chill speech and because of the ways that it will shape our society. And so it's just very thought-provoking, and I want to commend 
the Triangulation podcast overall and then that specific episode. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes as well as the Twitter handles for both Brian and his Secure Justice organization so you can follow there and learn more. So, Dr. Neifer, where can folks learn more from you during the week when you're not here pontificating on the EdTech Situation Room? Well, I like to pontificate, but when I'm not here pontificating, I pontificate on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. I'm also a part of the Northwest Council for Peer Education staff, uh, blog.ncc.org, where they're doing amazing professional development in um, all of the different major architectures, Microsoft, uh, Google, uh, Apple, great stuff going on there. And uh, I would also encourage you to look more into the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance, which is the alliance of 14 state virtual schools that works on trying to provide a sustainable and pedagogy-driven distance learning education to provide students options in states via their public school. Awesome. What about you, Dr. Fryer? If you wouldn't mind dropping a link to that uh, yes. down the show notes, I will put that one in as well. So I am W. Fryer on Twitter. My blog, speedofcreativity.org, is the space where I have been sharing intermittent blog posts since about 2005 when I set up that website. I've been blogging since 2003. And I have actually been thinking more about the slower pace of blog post interaction versus social media and Twitter. So it doesn't mean I'm not going to, you know, be... Um, you know, avidly participating in the social media sphere, but I think it's a pretty important conversation to think about, you know, how shallow or deep we are in our thinking and our, and our reading of ideas. And, you know, there's a tendency in social media just to be sharing headlines and doing some shallow reading and thinking. So the academic Emmy says we need to also be going deep. So I'm looking forward to some time off the grid. I think Jason and I will both be here next week, but first couple weeks of uh, July, maybe up in the air. Looking forward to attending uh, the Institute for Media Literacy in Providence, Rhode Island, the Renee Hobbs uh, Media Education Lab sponsored week of professional development. Really looking forward to that. And I'll be headed there the third week of July. So if you're going to ISTE, please share on that not at ISTE hashtag as well as the ISTE hashtag. We want to give a shout out to Peggy George who joined us in our chat room and encourage anybody who would like to not only check out our YouTube versions that you can find on our YouTube channel, but visit edtechsr.com where you can subscribe to audio only as well as smaller 360p video versions. If you really think watching Jason and I you know, is important and exciting, but we're really here for the ideas. So I think you'll get just as much out of the audio, but give us a shout out. Let us know if you're listening to the show. And until next time, we encourage everyone out there to stay savvy and stay safe. Good day.